0: Enjoy this recording taken from an unscripted live audio conversation on Mensa, that's M-E-N-T-Z-A.
1: We are delighted to introduce Another Time, Another Place. This session is presented by Rajasthan Patrika. The tra- comparable and have nurtured a space for infinite imagination in our minds. Tarana Hussain Khan's The Begum and the Dastan paints pageantry of the feudal past, a mirror of the sisters disillusioned by the structures of modernity titled, So All is Peace, or via the medium of endless suppositions. style established notions and varying perspectives in their work. In Writer, publishing commentator Kanishk Gupta, they discuss writing, fiction, and the journey across possibilities. Let's welcome our speakers.
0: Hello. It gives me great pleasure to be in conversation with uh, two first-time writers. Uh, uh, their books, on the surface at least, seem very different. One than ours, novel is set in uh, the Delhi of 2000s, Vaitarana's novel is set in the fictional feudal town of Sherpur in 1897. But a closer reading of the two works throws up a lot of similarities, at least in the larger ideas that the books, the novels are grappling with. Uh, That of uh, female agency, that of the idea of confinement, both physical and mental, keeping up appearances. Uh, before, before I uh, move to the questions, I'm going to like briefly uh, talk about the books and uh, introduce the two uh, uh, authors. Vandana Singh Lal is an environmentalist who has worked in the forests of Madhya Pradesh documenting forest protection practices uh, dabbled in filmmaking in Mumbai, anchored news for a television channel, and assisted in writing and directing documentaries. She has worked as a policy advisor to the New Zealand government. Uh, and I'm talking uh, briefly about the book. Uh, so all Is Peace." Uh, when 25-year-old twin sisters, Laila and Tanya, are found starving in the upmarket apartment, there is frenzy in the media. For how often does one find two striking middle-class women one half dead, the other not speaking, living in a state of disrepair and chaos for no apparent reason. Why did they starve themselves? Theories about them are rampant, but disillusioned journalist, Raman is loath to follow the story. That is, until Tanya begins to talk to him and the darker truth behind the sisters start to unravel. So all piece is a richly atmospheric, deeply claustrophobic story of two women confronting the everyday realities of life in Delhi. It is at once a psychological drama and a social commentary on the world today. Welcome, Vandana. Uh, Tarana Hussain Khan is a writer and a food historian based in Rampur. Her articles on Rampur cuisine, culture, and oral history have appeared in Eaton Magazine, Scroll, Wire, Daily O. She has contributed a short story to the anthologies *Daisy Delicacies and Dastar Kwan, Food Writings from South Asia and Diaspora. She founded the Rampur Book Club in 2016 to promote the reading of world literature in Rampur. The Begum and the Dasthan is a work of historical fiction set in feudal India based on real-life characters. It traces the story of Firoza Begum, who defies... Uh, the orders of her family, and happens to attend the savan ceremony uh, at the Nawab's palace, uh, after which she is confined, uh, forced to marry the Nawab, uh, and be a part of a harem. It is a powerful story about history. Uh, It's a powerful novel about storytelling history and capturing the lost voices of women across time. Uh, Vandana and Tarana wanted to do some readings before I uh, start asking them Questions about the book, so Vandana, would you like to start first? And
2: so I'll try juggling the mic and the book. I'm reading the first chapter of my book, and just a couple of pages. Uh, it's called the Mummy Hued Mummy. It is Diwali night. As the last of the sun's rays disappears on the western horizon, a bottle rocket lit by a young boy in a six by five feet concrete yard with its four mandatory potted plants, Wilting Primeria, Money plant, bougainvillea Villa, and an undersized traveler's palm, falls short, shivers and lands on the balcony of the apartment upstairs. It fortunately does not explode in fluorescent colors, unlike what the box it came in had claimed it would do. But the meager sparks, still colorful, spewing out of it its mangled remains, set the pile of debris gathered there, dust, dry leaves, pieces of flying paper, twigs, the undeterminate particulates of smoggy urban living on fire. The boy's mother sends him hurrying up to inform the residents of the house about the mishap. He rings the bell and knocks on the faded green door that is only partially visible in the glow of the row of tiny lotus-shaped bulbs strung by his father on the landing downstairs for much longer than he normally would have because he does not want to return home and face his mother's wrath. He taps tunes on the doors. He draws very light, impermanent graffiti with his fingertips blackened by charcoal, sulfur, and saltpeter. And on an impulse, he picks up an empty mango wood packaging crate lying forgotten on one side of the landing, places it against the door, and climbing on it, peeks into the house through the small hole that functions as an old-fashioned peephole. For a few moments, he sees nothing in the dark. But just as he's about to jump off the crate, the room lights up by the glow of another firecracker, the long-burning, multicolored guide that paints it pink and green and blue and yellow before turning it a deeper black than it had been before. And the boy stumbles back, nearly falling off the crate. In the room, he has seen two women, one tall and thin, moving or sitting close to the door, and another far behind her, lying so still and straight and dark and shriveled, That she could be the Egyptian mummy from the encyclopedia that he pours over often. And despite being only seven years old, the boy is sure that the woman is dead. That's my piece.
3: The passage uh, that I have chosen is actually not the first chapter, but it is um, a very crucial part of the book where um, Firoza Begum, as uh, Kanish said in his uh, very generous introduction, um, she goes to attend the savni uh, that was uh, celebrated by the Nawab. That is, they celebrate Savan or Monsoon. And there uh, she insults the Nawab. And later she realizes that the person um, she had insulted for his bad behavior is act- actually the Nawab. And she is really terrified. So I'll also juggle the mic and the book. <laughs> there are stories, whispers, and then there is the truth. My story can draw from any of these or from all of these. That evening, Firoza Begum and her family entered through the ladies' entrance to the Darbar Hall of the Benazir Palace. It led to a gallery that ran around the hall, shuttered with split bamboo curtains, hanging on elaborate arches to shield the ladies from the male eyes. Because there was a parda system that was practiced at that time. A eunuch assured them to their seats to the right of the royal throne where they had a good view of the proceedings. The light in the viewing gallery were low such that only the silhouettes of the ladies with a gleam of color could be discerned by an attentive male eye. Feroza sat close to the frieze Peering at the hall resplendent with glittering chandeliers, turbaned kings, bejewelled in their long jama kurtas, the noblemen and British officers in their smart trousers and red coats with badges and insignia. The musicians were seated at the centre on a platform with Muga Jan, glamorous in her red and gold dancing costume, lithe and ready, her tinkling feet beating a rhythm. The Chobdars, that is the Maze Bearers, entered the hall and announced the arrival of the Nawab, reciting his high-sounding titles. Amirul Umrah, Farzan De'ala, Daulat-e-Englishia. Everybody rose from their seats and the British officers tucked their hats under their arms. Munga Jan bent double in her salaam. Zubeda Begum, that is the mother of Firoza Begum, asked Firoza to get back to her seat. Um, Ami, no one can see us from outside. Let me just look at the Nawab once. The Nawab entered with quick, impatient steps, his head surging ahead of his body, flanked by the British agent and the chief minister. His frame was unimpressive and puny, but clothed in a cleverly padded, flesh-colored brocade shirwani. The ruby gleaming in his serpache and the pearl and diamond strings covering the pigeon chest created a dazzling aura of royalty. The Nawab turned to speak to his chief minister, the immaculately clipped moustaches quivering with his smile. It was an unremarkable face imprinted with arrogance and that befitted all the tales of despotism she had heard whispered about him. Bibi, it's him, he knew her. She had insulted the Nawab and identified herself. Thank you.
0: My first question to uh, both Vandana and Tarana uh, both of you came to fiction writing rather late in the day and while there is no ideal appropriate age to write fiction uh, fiction is challenging even for like established writers so even like writers who've written fiction in the past but you started rather late so I wanted to know about the challenges involved in uh, writing a debut novel um,
2: I'm not quite sure what is the right time to write fiction <laughs> um, so uh, so I'm not like i'm I'm not quite sure how to answer this because wow. I wrote fiction when i wrote when I want oh, needed to write know, fiction
0: these, uh, writing something or the other, you were like assisting you know like.
2: No, I was always, I've always been a reader and a writer in the sense that I have uh, worked uh, all my life. I have kind of depended on my writing to go through life, including for my exams. So, yeah, always a writer. But I was writing uh, non fiction in the sense reports for ministers, um, World Bank documents, you, you know.
0: also like assisted uh, like screenplay writers and documentary filmmakers yes yep, yep but
2: the scripting was very uh, yeah yeah yes so yeah i was with writing all my life when when i read about uh, this so as you said they came from an uh, uh, incident in real life so when i re- read about these two sisters who had been found starving in an apartment in delhi and i read that they were educated that kind of stayed with me i wasn't sure what would make to educated women shut themselves and starve themselves it just it just it just stayed in my head it kept i kept thinking about it and so this book came out of it but this is not their story like i did not follow up what happened to those sisters what was their story this just came from two women if they found i mean what would motivate or it's a very organic book. Like, it's... That incident stuck in my head and then I I had to write. That was the moment when I had to sit down and write. So, um, uh, like...
0: So, basically, the idea was... um, Yeah, the idea
2: came there and the writing was completely organic. Like, I knew I was going to write someday, but I didn't know when. And that day, I sat down and I started writing and it just... I had no plot. I just knew that it was the story of these two people. And... Also another painting, uh, you're probably going to mention that later. But, you know, it was the story of these two starving sis- twin sisters who've been found uh, in an apartment in Delhi, in an upmarket apartment. And then we go back to discovering what happened. And that's what the book is about. My other
0: question to you is, normally first-time writers are very anxious about things like, not just plot, but even the, the query letter that they send out to agents. You know, they have these informal closed writing groups where they keep refining their query letters, which is like not more than 700 words. And you have mentioned in all your interviews and even now that the whole story came to you very organically, that you did not think through the plot and uh, you did not have any structure in mind. So can you talk about the whole writing process and using so many perspectives and tones uh, in the novel?
2: Yeah, so uh, I did not send out any query letters or anything initially. I'm
0: talking about uh, anxiety of first time
2: So I started writing because I needed to write. I wasn't sure if anybody was ever going to read it. Like, it was just the space between me and my writing. Nobody had, I had not published anything before, not even a magazine article. So it was complete blind writing, completely organic, completely for me. Someday somebody would read it is what I was it was something that I had to do. So I did it. I started with this and I, when I finished the book, like I actually physically used to shut myself in a room with blinds drawn only then I could write. Nobody would be at home. Only then I could write. And the day I finished writing, I actually physically had to open the blinds, open windows and just my characters were done. Like my book was over. That's how it began. That's how it became the story. Like, I'm not a writer. I wasn't a writer I before was I
0: wrote The room book. where it was written was as dark and claustrophobic as the novel itself. But it's yes. claustrophobic in a good way.
2: <laughs> yes. A creative way. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. So that's how it began. And then once the book was done is when I started thinking about getting it published. And then that whole. So it, I went the other way around. I didn't have a plot. I kind of organically grew with the book and with the characters and kind of got led by them. So, uh, yeah, so the you same question.
0: Uh, have written works of non-fiction before yes, writing yes. Begum and the Dastan. you've also published a young adult novel, right. it was published on the Juggernaut app.
3: Yes, correct.
0: Tell us about uh, the, the the journey of writing Begum and the Dastan
3: Okay, so um, I also came to writing very late and the way I think about it is that, like you said, there is a, a time when you feel that, yes, I must write about this. And I feel the sensibility of filtering your experiences as you go on because I was a teacher and a school administrator. There were so many experiences that were happening around me and they kind of settled inside me, I guess. So there was a young adult in me and so I I wrote two young adult fiction. The idea of the Begum and the Dastan came from the oral um, history, let us say, or the narratives. Um, that you hear about while you are growing up, you know, this is, this is how so-and-so behaved. And look at this girl, she defied her parents and this is what happened to her. So like, Feroza Begum defied her father and said that I want to go to this Savmi. The father warned her, she said, no, I want to go. And what happened after that was that she was trapped in the harem of the Nawab, right? The family abandoned her and the story, the way it is told to young people, or it is told, let us say, in the courtyards much before um, we got hooked onto social media for our narratives. That story just stayed with me for years and years and there were lots of questions in my mind. Should the family have abandoned her? and they never saw her again and all the all that happened to her came from uh, inside the harem came from hearsay or through uh, other filtered information now this was something that was extremely intriguing i was doing uh, some research on the culture of rampur and i was writing about uh, culinary history of rampur and, um, at the same time, this story was there very much in my mind. And there were so many questions that would, I would just come into, into my head. Like, what, how was the harem organized? How did the food, like everything has been so, uh, slowly, you can say culturally, we have become impoverished in some ways. So many systems, subsystems, the ugliness as well as the beauty of uh, that era has been totally erased. So just recreating them. Uh, all that and recreating the events of this story just became a sort of a passion for me. So this story was not something that I wrote, um, you know, like uh, like you did, like in a total passionate way because it was a journey that I had to take. I had to answer questions. I had to go on a quest. Or I needed to find out so many things about Feroza Begum. And so it took me actually four years to write it down and rewrite it several times till I actually came to the form that, um, that best um, corresponded to my desire, because I feel that this is historical fiction, but historical fiction has to be in dialogue with the present day. And so, so ultimately the book is a historical fiction as well as it correspond to uh, the present-day women and how they are dealing with their realities. So
0: when you talk about the story behind the book, is it a true story? It
3: is inspired by real events yeah. and real characters, though I had to change the name.
0: Yeah, so Let's talk yes. about that because a uh, full disclosure, I represent her novel. I'm an agent, so I, I sold her novel to the publisher, so I know things that a lot of people are not <laughs> yes. supposed to know and Tarana was forced to make some difficult... Decisions yes, yes. right before the book was sent to press. So, I mean, yes, yes. So, so it, was, it out, huh? so it
3: was, it was, it was, it was, I think the toughest decision for the book was changing the names, creating a fictional place, because you see, uh, no, no work or no success of any work is worth hurting the sensitivities of people. And since this was so close to me, I did not want to hurt anybody uh, through this book. Secondly, the book was meandering between history and fiction, because when you write historical fiction, there are a lot of things that you need to put in. there are some characters that would fill in the gaps, there are events that would fill in the gaps and you know you can't say this is hundred percent historical, and I, I did not want to have that uh, uh, thing on my conscience that you know I wrote something and it it was wrong so ultimately the question of changing the name was made by me.
0: And approved by me?
3: <laughs> well you said that the book is brought dead now and you've a say? big you said, it's it's now brought dead. That's
0: <laughs> <laughs> a yeah. uh, Even you have employed different registers, different perspectives. The same story is being told through three voices. One of them is in the form of a remnants, one of them is fictionalized and told as a storytelling.
3: Yes, correct, correct. In a
0: storytelling format by the Dashton. So just yes, tell yes. us about that experience. Yes,
3: yeah, so um initially I just wrote the core of the story, the story of Rosa Begum, what happened to her and how, you know, she dealt with the life in the harem, how she got her revenge and how everything ended for her. But at the same time, it was there was something that needed to reach really down into, um, you know, the cultural aspect of it. And so I employed um, something that you would call as a, a magic realism that is a part of the dastan tradition. And the dastan tradition was something which was very much a part of the cultural scenario of a um, number of places in North India, like Avad and Delhi and Rampur. They had dastan goes till the 1960s, and this was completely... Um, ended and well, we did try to. We are trying to revive it. So this was again something that was very intriguing. So uh, the dastan go in the book is actually narrating the tale of Firoza Begum to the people. He wants the people to know, but this is like a fantasy. He wants the people to know this is what is happening, and he has the responsibility of the storyteller, like like us. We have the responsibility of telling stories. And the third narrative is of the present day Amira, who is the great uh, granddaughter of Rosa Begum. She is listening to the story narrated by her grandmother of Rosa Begum. So the same story is told by three narrators, and the third narrator is a and third narrator who is narrating the story. So so that that's one Bandana, experimentation. I
0: wanted you to talk about the structure of the novel and the shifts in and time and perspectives both time and perspectives
2: Yeah, so the book starts with uh, you know two women who've been found starving in an apartment and then we uh, one of the one of the sisters or their twin sisters and one of the sisters is in in coma and she's in ICU and the other sister and both of them are by the time they're found they are in mentally they're about 18 and 15 kg's mentally in a very weird space so one of the sisters starts telling the story and she's fevered and it's like a stream of consciousness so that's one aspect of the story but then there are outsiders who are viewing the sisters so there is there there's the perspective of the journalist and the inspector who's uh, ig who's supposed to Find out what happened because this is a big story. It's a it happens in national capital, so everybody is interested. It becomes a question of women's, you know, uh, the ministry wants to know what's going on. So there is a lot of pressure, and of course, media. Media is really interested in, you know, it's a, it's an exciting story, and uh, there are there are, there are these two beautiful who used to be beautiful women who have been found starving. So then the I think. Uh, I will be a bit uh, disingenuous if I say that, you know, I thought of it. I thought I'll plot it this way. I didn't. I just started writing the story and then the characters came through and then other characters wanted their voice and it worked like that. So, uh, so, so, yeah, it's told from the perspective of mostly Tanya, who is this fevered sister, but also from the journalist's perspective, who's looking at it from outside and, and the inspector and then we discover other things and tanya is a bit of an unreliable narrator i guess because she's so she's in mentally in that space where she's not necessarily coherent and not necessarily know, knows what she's talking about and she deals with issues related to feminism like she's an educated very well read woman whose family dies in an accident so then she and her sister are placed They have to now deal with the society on a one-to-one basis. And the society is very different from how she had imagined it to be from her reading, from the way she has been brought up. And that clash is what the book talks about, about how we, when we are reading or when we are as educated women, we expect the world to be in a certain way and then we come face to face with the reality, which is, the reality of streets of Delhi is very different from the reality of my head when I'm reading or when I'm living a life, it is very safe in my little safe space. And when that safe space, that wall is broken, then what is the kind of clash that happens and how do you deal with that? And I think that's how that's basically what the book is about. And the perspectives are from like societies and their own.
0: I wanted to talk about some of the themes in both the novels. The idea of confinement in both the novels, whether it's the two sisters who have shut themselves out to the world, or whether it's Firoza Begum who's confined to the harem in a new way of living, eerily and ironically, it reflects the pandemic that, you know, the whole world went through for many years. Just wanted to understand uh, that has your reading of the book, kind of, your reading of your own book evolved? Uh, or has it shown any new dimensions about the book that you may not have uh, understood or even uh, stumbled upon had the pandemic not happened?
4: Would you like to
3: ask? <laughs> so, um, initially, of course, when I wrote the book, the pandemic wasn't around and, um, yes, the idea of being confined to a harem was something that was very claustrophobic for me but being confined inside the house and being terrified of of things that lie outside the house also. I think that's what uh, your book is also about. And the idea of Feroza Begum inside the harem is actually mirrored by her great granddaughter, Amira, who is living in the present day and age. And she is not, you know, she is uh, confined in a way that where would she go? She used to go to the school, but her fees is not paid, and so she she has nowhere else to go but stay at home and listen to these stories. So my book actually confronts the question that has anything changed for small town girls and women today? Of course, we if we sit in Delhi, and uh, though of course in your book the. The twins were in, in a big town, but they were still confined. But the idea of confinement of women, in many ways, through several time periods, in, in, a, in mentally also, that feeling of conf- being confined mentally, the feeling of impossibilities that exist, that I can't do this, I can't go there. This is, these are my limitations. I think these are the things that exist even today especially in small town india and in the villages so i just wanted to project this idea that though you know the, there are no harems but we are still living in the harems of the mind that is what i wanted to convey well, to my book
0: there's a lot of mental confinement in in the book
2: a uh, lot of mental confinement yeah, in the no. book in her book as well yeah yes i think there are two uh, essential themes one yeah, when you come face to face with the reality of living Without uh, a boundary between your space and and the and the world around you, but there's another. There is also. I mean, these are young women, and one of the women kind of finds a relationship, which is not necessarily sanctioned by the society. And the and the double-edged uh, effect it has on her. On the one hand, she's happy with the relationship. On the other, the society doesn't look at it well, and so they keep pounding her until she breaks. And the relationship itself also is because of various reasons also breaks. So it, it is also the way we look at a woman's sexuality, for instance, it also deals with that. She starts feeling guilty that because of her needs, she opened a Pandora's box, which she wasn't able to confine, which she wasn't able to shut and that was a very uh, interesting question for me because you know in the west people like amya Srinivasan, people are dis- are talking about how women's sexuality in various forms uh, do do women have right to really have a desire and what are the various forms in vi- what are the various forms it takes but here the whole question of desire is like put aside like the, a woman cannot have that desire and even Leila kind of because of the way her... which Okay, so these two sisters live in a housing society in Delhi, where the rules... I don't know if anybody has ever lived in a, in a in a gated community in Delhi or any place. There are these rules that a community of elders... And usually they are older men with preconceived notions of how people should live, especially women living alone. There is There are rules that you're not supposed to come back before... After 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, you cannot have a party, you cannot have uh male visitors for instance you know certain, which is ridiculous for for an adult person to have to confine to but that's how it is in a lot of societies so they're dealing with that also that they have a man in their lives one one of the sisters and the community is so against it so this book also deals with that question the question of and sh- and the shutting when they start shutting down and when they So these sisters confine themselves to their houses, they shut and they starve themselves. And they do not starve themselves in a... uh, You know, they do not make the decision to starve themselves. It just happens. As they go through the process, they start eliminating food. Because I think food is the uh, the strongest bond that we have to our physical self. And I think unconsciously, they start getting rid of that kind of uh, connection.
0: Start getting rid of the foods in an alphabetical order can you can you just tell us about that whole uh, yeah so uh
2: they started as a like they are they have done i i don't know if i can say it without revealing everything but there is a kind of twist in the end but so they start they started as a game between them so they start by they they unconsciously i think want to punish themselves to some extent because of what has happened but uh, so they start their starvation with alphabetically going they don't like call it starvation. They just start talking about a game that they're going to play and start eliminating foods, which say starts with an A and then B and then C. And then they decide that A and B and C are not confining enough food. So they start talking about ingredients of food. So anything that has an ingredient, for instance, you know, the scientific ingredients. So if something has vitamin E or uh, something has ascorbic acid or things like that, they start eliminating like that. And that's how they go. And they are... I think by the time they reach end, they are already almost dead. So, but, And they're found after that, on that Diwali night, when that little boy sees, uh, peeps inside their house and sees. Understand what is happening completely
0: one thing that I found very interesting about your novel was the way you have named your chapters, chapter headings. They, they kind of foreshadow the chapter, but they are very punchy, those lines. So, how did you go about that?
2: <laughs> okay, after my second book, I think I'll be able to tell you about the process. Right now, I sound really dumb, because it is very organic. Like I said, really I haven't I didn't really think it through that much so when I was reading uh, I had to make chapters uh, and the names of chapters were big be- for the way <laughs> they were I'm sorry I am very b- next novel and I'll tell you in detail how what my writing process is about this was organic
0: both the novels have a have great cinematic appeal you can you can see it being adapted into a film or a series so and a lot of writers because of the kind of monies in publishing these days they kind of come up with themes or they write books so that so that they get picked up by you know like producers and ott platforms so was that like something at the back of your mind while working on the books
3: no not not for me at all (laughs) My book required a sort of a, a description of the smallest details because this was a world that I was creating which was totally, um, you know, which had totally vanished. So it acquired a cinematic quality uh, because of the descriptions and secondly because one part, one uh, thread of the book is fantasy, again that had a lot of drama and um, color to it. So, um, so it became kind of cinematic, but I don't think, well, you are my agent, you decide <laughs> if it should be made into a movie or something.
2: It should be, it should it be. It should be okay. Let's look around Vandana? Uh, I don't know if they can make a movie out of it. I don't know because it's very character driven. So, uh, I know these days, I think they're making very character driven uh, series. So perhaps, but when I was writing it, uh, no, I didn't really think about anything. really I wasn't even sure it was going to be published. I was just writing because I needed to write. And when people actually like read the draft and said, oh, this is really good and we want to send it to publishers and like lots of publishers wanted to publish, that was surprising for me. So forget uh, looking at OTT platforms or movies. I was just not even sure that it'll ever see the light of the you day. managed
0: to find a UK agent and a very good deal with a publisher. So... It ended well. We have we are running short of time, so wanted to ask audience questions. Good I liked listening to you guys. So, as both of your books are based upon a thought that you that struck you and that you eventually developed upon. So in today's generation, we don't find people actually giving so much thought to an event or you know, that event sticking their minds. Like uh, the story has stuck in mom's mind for I don't know how long and she has taken four years to just write the book, so it must have been really long a process. So, do you think there is a gap between uh, things that is going in the younger generation, like they are too much attracted by the social media and they are not paying attention to such events that have occurred? And if yes, how do we bridge the gap? So, um,
3: should I go first? Sure. So, um, uh, the reason… one of the reason why I came to writing very late was when you age, you kind of become more patient to really filter out things and uh, think. Yes, I do feel that uh, the the newer generation uh, has lost its focus because you need to be entertained all the time at every point of the time. So, so does it stick to you? Will you go out and, you know, continuously research it? Yes, that is what uh, makes real fiction, if you really, you know, get deep into it, and the characters start dominating your thought process and you actually live with them for years and months, months definitely. Otherwise, you would never have those layers. And I think that's essential for any writing process.
4: Hi, so this question is for uh, Tarana Ma'am. And uh, I guess I was wondering that for you, like you wanted to tell the story, which was very much rooted in reality. So was it, w- were, you, were you clear from the beginning that it was gonna be a piece of fiction or was fiction a tool to tell history? As in all histories are fiction and all fiction is history ultimately. So, I, I mean, I think there's something really powerful about fiction as a way of telling history. And in terms of like, it allows a lot of liberties, like you were saying. So, so was that a conscious choice, like to move away from like fact to this this place of speculation? What could have been? And in in general, like even with dastan, with storytelling, there is this idea of retelling, right? You tell a story, then you tell it again, and then something keeps changing. So, like you would, you are in in essence retelling a story, and there are of course many many layers. But still, like what, how did you kind of think about fiction as a tool for? History
3: telling. Right. That that's a very interesting question. So you see, there's always there was always a choice when you are uh, writing uh, about something that actually happened or characters that who were actually there, and you are basing that story on oral history and written history. You have a choice. You can write nonfiction or uh, historical nonfiction, let us say, and base it on references, etc., which a number of writers are doing, and you know doing it really well. Uh, when I was writing uh, about uh, Feroza Begum, remember that women do not have so much of references in written history. Most of her story was based on oral history. I had very, uh, very few written references of her. She seemed to have just disappeared off the pages of history. So then I had to fill in the gaps. And while I was filling in the gaps, I was moving from history to fiction. The same thing that H- Hilary Mantle does, you know, you have to put in a little bit fiction and that's what historical fiction is all about. So that became a conscious choice for me that, yes, I will make it a historical fiction. I could very well have made it just a, a historical perspective of, of, of a begum, written about her life with references and everything. But how much of history is, uh, perfect history is oral history really, you know? And women, the history of women is barely ever written. It's the history dominated by men. And I wanted to write about a woman. Thank you.
1: Hi, uh, this is for Tarana, ma'am. What was the biggest challenge you faced while, uh, you know, during the writing process? And what was your, uh, what exactly was your process of research like?
3: Yeah, again, a very interesting question. The research process actually, uh, let me just talk about the research process first. The research process began from the written histories, all the written histories of that era, right? The letters, the diaries, looking at them, and then came along with that oral history of people who had heard, because this this is a generational telling of history, taking out the common points and deciding which is true and which is not, and which is just an exaggeration, right? So that whole research took a, a, a long time. Also the actual physical structure of places, How was the harem physically structured? Who went in? Who went out? How did food come in? How did the services go in and out? So a lot of uh, stuff, and I had to go to the regional archives. I had to visit a number of places to truly understand that world. So that much is about the, uh, the research. The other question is the most challenging thing was the structure of the book. Because there are three strands to the book. There is one strand that is of the present time, There is one that is historical fiction based on true uh, story. And the third is the fantasy element. Putting the three elements together took a very long time. I had to write and rewrite for the three to meld together and not be jarring. And they had to flow into each other also and correspond to each other also. I think that was the most challenging aspect. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Vandana and Tarana. And I would urge all of you to buy your copies of uh, So All is Peace and Tarana's book. Shashi Tharoor has called it an astonishing debut. And Tarana's book is up for a major prize, a women's fiction prize instituted by She the People. So, all the best for that.
3: Thank you so much. This has been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, for you so much. It. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank
1: you. Thank 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 you.
0: Thank you. 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 Thank 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 Thank